0: Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch, to the second part of the Geniza. We left off last week just as the discovery was about to be made, I believe in 1896.
1: Okay, so we'll give the listeners a a very brief recap. By 1896, there are only two people left in the race to get to the main Geniza collection in Cairo, which needed not only expertise, as we mentioned, but funding. And it also needed a way of getting around the government in Egypt, somehow exporting tens of thousands of manuscripts. And for this, you needed to be British.
0: I mean, I know you're a proud Brit, Rabbi Hirsch, but are the British particularly better at getting through all the red tape and bureaucracy than others?
1: No, nothing to do with that (laughs) at all. It was simply that since the 1880s, Britain had taken over many of the areas of administration in Egypt. They didn't legally control the country and it wasn't officially part of the British Empire, but de facto Egypt was a British protectorate and therefore to this day there are some in Egypt who talk of the collection having been removed without the consent of the Egyptians although um,
0: we're quite infamous for that having a lot of things that don't really belong to us now
1: but the difference here is that full permission was given by the chief rabbi um, aaron raphael ben shimon who arguably was qualified to make a decision about his own shul's possessions which had belonged to the jews all the way through the last thousand years in the same location common history tells us that in may 1896 these two Presbyterian Scottish widows, Mrs. Gibson and Mrs. Lewis, often referred to as the Gibloos, uh, were the catalyst to making the Geniza famous. Why don't they feature more prominently? I don't think I've heard of them. Okay, so I guess it's not as simple as that. The way it unfolded in 1896 is as follows. These two women lived in Cambridge they spoke at least seven languages. They made a name for themselves in the field of biblical discovery and exploration, especially after 1893. They had discovered the oldest Syriac version of the Christian Gospels in the Sinai area of Egypt. And in 1896, at the beginning of the year, they got a letter from Egypt telling them, that there are valuable documents being sold in the marketplace in Cairo. Now, they were less aware of the potential of the Gneezer for the simple reason that although they spoke Hebrew and Arabic, they couldn't identify a fragment of the Talmud or of Halachic responser. They had no background in religious texts outside of the sort of the bible but this offer was too good to pass up on and who was it who wrote to them we actually don't know a, a mysterious informant but it was enough to make them go and from here on in the next few months are what you might call a series of hashkocha protis meaning various things just happening at the right time some of which were unknown. Firstly, they get to Cairo when it is in the grips of a cholera plague epidemic. So they don't stay long at all. Yet they managed to acquire a bundle of fragments. I guess the seller didn't have a lot of clients during the plague, so they possibly got things that they might not have done otherwise. But this bundle will include one life changing document. They travel overland because ships are in quarantine, through Gaza, across wilderness. At one point, they, they get lost, and after wandering at one stage without tents, they make it to Jerusalem and they buy more fragments there. At customs, the whole lot nearly gets confiscated by the officials but at the last minute their guide and cook intervenes and tells the officials that these pieces are all from the bible and the quran which were exempt from any export ban and so you know they make it back the pieces nearly did not make it back to england so they come back to Cambridge. But they're not in a rush to show Solomon Schechter what they had. Remember, they need a Jewish expert to identify most of the stuff that is non-biblical. As far as they're concerned, it's a haul of fragments. And yes, some of it is going to be interesting, but, you know, not life-changing. And therefore, it's only two weeks later in May that Agnes bumps into Schechter on the high street. And she tells him to come around. She finishes her shopping, and Shechter is already there, and he borrows a piece of Talmud and a dirty scrap of Hebrew script. Within an hour, he's identified this scrap of paper, and to say that he was blown away would be putting it extremely mildly. Because it was from a book that no one had seen for a thousand years. And I don't mean that that particular page. I mean the whole book. In fact, the majority of academics in the world at the time did not believe that the book even existed, that it had ever existed. And to make things even more coincidental... Solomon Schechter was one of a handful of people in the whole world who could identify this piece of paper. Most scholars wouldn't have had a clue. And this scrap is not only of interest to research, it's of very real importance to Jewish history, to the Jewish narrative of history, because
0: this page was from Ben Sirah. So obviously, I know who Ben Sira uh, was.
1: <laughs> okay, but, but... <laughs> right. Yes, yes. Let's uh, explain who Ben <laughs> yeah. Sira was. I was, I was going to get there. Um, a little lesson in Bible criticism, or perhaps, in other words, how authentic is Tanakh? So, particularly in the 19th century, there was a whole school of thought called biblical critics who questions, who questioned rather, what the Jewish claim to Messorah, to the handing down through the generations of Judaism and of Torah, uh, how authentic it was. not going to go into real detail, I guess those who come to the Pirkei Avashir this Shabbos at the JLE can hear more about Messorah, but it's... In brief, as it's relevant to us, the school of higher biblical criticism basically said that the Jews had almost invented a number of the books of Tanakh, of the biblical canon. I mean, obviously, the secular side of higher biblical criticism said the Jews had invented the whole thing. Uh, there was no revelation on Mount Sinai at all. But I mean, even the church scholars within higher criticism said jews had corrupted tanakh and books svarim like shirashirim tehillim were all late inventions from the end of the second temple period so you know a good 600 years after we would date it and basically their claim was not only about history, it was about theology. They did so to discredit Judaism. These Christian academics of the School of Higher Biblical Criticism, or the uh, School of Higher Antisemitism, as Schechter often referred to these people, claimed that Jews weren't the chosen people anymore during the Second Temple Period, because of their many sins. And allegedly, you can see this in literature, because... Allegedly, from the time of the early Nevi'im, the early prophets, Jewish literature goes downhill further and further because essentially the Jews were falling out of favor with God. And apparently this period was contaminated by the materialistic character of the priests who wanted to grab power. And real literature only picks up again later You'll never guess when, right when the founder of Christianity appears, because the new chosen people were the ones. Now, to Jewish scholars, both like Schechter in Cambridge and Neubauer in Oxford, this supposedly academic approach of higher biblical criticism is tainted by an extreme anti-Jewish
0: bias. So why is Schechter so excited about finding this Ben Sira document?
1: Okay, so that was by way of introduction to understand the lay of the land and the difference, strong differences of opinion between the Jews and the Christians. But from the year, let's say, 1000 onwards, there are no pages of Ben Sira in Hebrew anywhere in the world that have been seen, only in Latin and Greek. And the church claimed that, in fact, it was never written in Hebrew in the first place. They said it's too good for the Jews to have ever been able to write it. It was called Ecclesiasticus by the church. In reality, though... Sira was written in hebrew he is a figure who lived sometime around the beginnings of the second temple it's unclear exactly when or what his ancestry was some attribute it to Yirmiyahu hanavi gomorrah in yovomus etc so he predates the mishnah but he's later than tanakh in a way he's the bridge between these two eras and he had written a sort of modern version of Keheles, you might call it. It's along the lines of and with the style of and almost with quotes from Keheles. And it was a continuation of Keheles and Tehillim, etc., which means that they, those books, must have been written hundreds of years before Ben Sirah, hundreds of years before Christianity hundreds of years before the church even existed, and therefore obviously written by Jews. And this was literature that the church themselves admit is very good. So Neubauer and Schechter knew that this was the case, but because there were only translations in Greek and Latin, although they were quite stilted, Schechter in particular spent years working on Sira, but they couldn't prove it. They didn't have anything written
0: in the original Hebrew. Until randomly, these two women happened to bring back some fragments from Cairo.
1: Right. So imagine the scenario. Uh, imagine finally the opportunity to tell these church scholars, or in English, these anti-Semites, uh, that they now have proof of Ben Sira in Hebrew. To give you an idea, the inaugural lecture by Professor Margolith in Oxford was about Ben Sirah being a Christian book. Now, he was a Jew who had recently converted to Christianity, so, you know, very keen to make it in the intellectual crowd of anti-Judaism. And there was no better topic than Ben Sira. It was a real hot potato, real dividing line. And these sisters bring back a medieval copy of Ben Sirah, bringing to England key evidence of the chain of continuity from Tanakh through to the medieval period. And it basically sticks two fingers up at the church, (laughs) basically. Now it doesn't kill biblical criticism forever, but it was very invigorating for the Jews and for the basic Jewish narrative of history. And the possibility of finding more now excites Schechter. So the discovery of this one fragment was not just fortunate, it's of real consequence. Now, Between the two of them, between Neubauer and Schechter, Neubauer had spent years tracking down Egyptian fragments long before Schechter started. And he sort of envisioned in his mind, you know, great finds. And the fact that Schechter makes this sudden lucky coup was basically too much to bear, especially as Neubauer was now 65, his health and eyesight on the decline. So although they had been colleagues and at some stage even friends, two Jews in the sea of non-Jewish academics in Oxford and Cambridge, although they had very different personalities, but it sort of tails off because of this. But this doesn't seal the fate of the Genizah. There's still another scene in this act because as Mussel would have it, both of them were invited to Elk and Adler brother of the chief rabbi son of the previous chief rabbi to identify fragments that he had brought back from cairo earlier which we mentioned last week but was unable to identify now nothing real came to light that evening but it had momentous consequence because shechter he doesn't only examine the fragments he smells them because it was both the odour and the appearance that enabled him to recognise the fragment that the Giblous had brought him as now definitively coming from the Ben Ezra synagogue. And therefore now it's imperative for him to get out there equally interesting is that as a result of that evening basically neubauer decides not to travel to cairo there's still a cholera plague raging there and given his age and the rigors of travel so they make diametrically different decisions almost based on that evening scherter comes back to adler he helps him identify more fragments and then asks his grateful friend If he could supply him with an introduction to Cairo's chief rabbi, because he's somehow going to try and negotiate the release of what he hopes are thousands of documents. He doesn't realize that he's literally going to bring everything, tens of thousands, back with him. So Adler asks his brother, the chief rabbi, and gives him a glowing letter of recommendation. Shechter is described as a London, you know, deeply learned, and a tzaddik. And it would hold great appeal for the chief rabbi there, but there would be consequences to what Adler and Schechter both claim was discussed at the meeting about any trip to Cairo. Okay. 1897, Schechter brings tens of thousands of documents to Cambridge. And although the history doesn't end there, the chase definitely does, because, anything brought out after that time was almost the result of this initial haul
0: Wow I guess now's the time to understand a bit more what exactly was that haul what did it teach the Jewish people Right you know what was the magnitude of the discovery
1: Perhaps as a one-liner and it's not an exaggerated one-liner mm-hmm. the modern study of medieval Jewish history would be inconceivable without the Geniza but forget sort of academics forget to study Actually, whoever you are, the Geniza is an incredible find. In Halacha, for instance, there are hundreds of responsa of the Goenim. Seven volumes are printed called Torosan Shel HaGoenim, the teachings of the Goenim. There are 12 volumes of Oitzar HaGoenim. And this is even used by the Chaznish, who was generally very reluctant to use sources found in manuscript, you know, centuries later, which hadn't gone through the, you know, the critical eye of a thousand years of Masera, it hadn't been viewed by, I don't know, the Shulchan or the Rambam or the Vilnagon, But he made an exception here regarding the measurement of an egg, a kibetza in his writings on Moyet.
0: And there's a responsum there about the use of raisin wine for kiddush and seder. So regarding what you just said about the Chazanisha's concerns, how do we know who wrote them? How do we know that they're an established source and on we could trust? So it is
1: only where you have the full responsum. You know who
0: wrote the question,
1: who wrote the answer.
0: An and actual name on the manuscript.
1: Either an actual name on the manuscript or it is clear potentially sometimes such as with the rumbum from the handwriting very clear but even more so from the references and from the connection to other questions that have been asked so
0: you can identify and the place as well i assume.
1: Yes, although Bavel, Iraq, would have been a center for this, but nevertheless, it does bear the hallmarks of scholarly education and background in the ability to respond to these questions. And, of course, the Goenim live at the time of the rise of this new religion of Islam um, and the ascendancy of the Arabs until, really, the 11th century. So during that period the fate of the greater part of the Jewish people was linked to the Muslim empire. So that's, so to speak, on the halachic side, but of personal interest is the social history, the prenuptial agreements, uh, the use of magic, general life there, two famous medieval Jews who are made much more famous by the Geniza. Let's, in fact, start with a personal letter and bring it to the fore. This is a letter written by a middle-class Jew which could have been written yesterday. He is an official. He is employed by the Sultan as an overseer of the Sultan's ships. So he's in charge of the passengers and the goods that they carry on board. And he writes a long letter which describes his many misfortunes and heartache. Partly because of his job but mostly because of the behaviour of his teenage son. At one stage... The minister of finance caused him and many other minor government officials quite some difficulty. And he had to hide and leave the country. And he spends a year in the deserts of Libya and Egypt. But during that time that he's away from home, his reckless and wasteful son, this is how he describes him, (laughs) sold everything in the house and spent the proceeds on wine and musicians (laughs) so this overseer managed to get on the ship to tunisia and in order to forestall further damage he takes his son along with him on the journey doesn't help so his grandmother and his father get him a job in the office of the director of finance of a particular district But very shortly afterwards, he quits and he returns to Alexandria to enjoy more music and European wine. Attempts to get him to go to Syria and Yemen are unsuccessful. And therefore, in despair, this overseer turns to an old friend with the request to employ his son, who meanwhile has now reached the age of 22 the father as his many biblical quotations and way of expression show was both religious and somewhat of a scholar the son clearly was anything (laughs) but
0: (laughs) so you're saying the whole generation gap wasn't invented in the 21st century
1: I, i mean you know for those of us who think that teenagers hanging out in the wrong crowd started in the age of snapchat think again. <laughs> it was very much
0: around 900 years ago. A bit and more sophisticated then, you know, well, musicians it, and uh, wine.
1: Uh, right. Okay. Their interests, I guess. But, you know, th- we're talking about a middle class Jew, which didn't in a way exist amongst the Jews living under Christianity, but very much did for Jews in the Muslim world. Now, what we have to bear in mind is that in the sort of Mediterranean area, saving face was a principle of personal conduct. Letters were very restrained. And therefore, to talk about one's misfortunes was very much in bad taste. You know, there's nothing worse than becoming other people's gossip. But the writer of this letter in his uh, grief He doesn't only describe his troubles and failures. He tells the person he's writing to, to make them the subject of his conversation wherever he goes. You know, he writes, uh, I brought him up and now he curses me. And I say to him, look at the sons of the Alexandrian beggars. Do you want to become like one of them? (laughs) And he says to me, as long as you're alive, I will be a good-for-nothing. Only after you're dead will I be successful. And the letter writes, you know, and Shlemah Melech, King Solomon has said, when sorrow is in a man's heart, communicate it to others.
0: Why do you think he sent off in the end?
1: So, actually... He must have, at some stage, assumed he'd gone too far and the letter was almost certainly not sent off. You can see this from the fact that, there's, first of all, there's no address on it. They didn't put things in envelopes at the time it was part of. And it lacks the concluding Hebrew phrases, which were normally, uh, you know, de rigueur, which is probably why it's in the Geniza. And we know the date because of this reference to the notorious finance minister
0: who was killed in 1129. What was the mail system like back then? How would you send a letter to... You would literally send it with somebody, with a caravan going with a out, with an individual. Because there's always an address generally on the response. Arm.
1: Yes, although... It's not I'm... that you
0: knew someone going. and
1: Well, even so, you would have to prompt the person bringing it to some degree but if you were sending a letter to the rumbum you wouldn't need to do much beyond writing rumbum fustat egypt Uh, you know it'll make its way there Uh, it's a bit like rubhaim you know in the 1930s in vilna then there is enormous interest in magic in amulets and spells there actually was an attempt to see whether people who'd uh, ordered spells also were part of other letters in the Geniza. Unfortunately, when it comes to magic, the individuals in the list are designated by their mother's name, whereas in most legal documents, the people were designated by their fathers, so you can't necessarily
0: cross-reference. It's what- dedicated to Mother's Day, this episode. <laughs> right.
1: I mean, it's like any choyle, any person who's ill, right? Use the mother's name. But what it does show is that numerous individuals turned to amateur or professional magicians, you could call it, for a solution to their problems. And sometimes they own handbooks or recipes of magic. And all of these people saw nothing wrong with the use of amulets and curses. They didn't mind having their own names on these texts, and they didn't bother to destroy them or cross out their names when they went out of use. Clearly, using amulets was common and acceptable amongst the Jews of medieval Cairo. Interestingly, in terms of gender, the number of men who either authored or received them is three times the amount of women.
0: That's so. Interesting. Are they authentic? Or were they all just fake money scams?
1: So, some very likely, in fact, are definitely authentic. Um, others are almost certainly charlatans, you know, ring this number and all your problems will be solved, health, shidduchim, whatever. Just um, like today. Yeah, exactly. So th- there's one for avoiding bites from scorpions, and you've got a few of them on the same page. You tear one off, it's like putting it on a, a bus shelter in Gula, <laughs> And more than that, although it's written in Hebrew, the writer calls it on Aphrodite, <laughs> which is not quite a, a Jewish idea uh, to help him out. So clearly not on the straight and narrow. And uh, Goiton, who is possibly the most famous researcher of the Geniza collection, describes a, a talisman for a safe journey. And he says, you know, uh, if somebody wants to travel, you have to take seven stones named after the seven prophets, Odom, Noach, Avram, Yitzhok, Yaakov, Moshe and Aaron, and say, terror and dread fall down on you all through the might of your arm, referring to God, till your people cross over, Adyavu Ramchur Hashem, right? Quote from a uh, posuk makes it seem much more authentic. Until I, your servant, who is uh, so-and-so, the son of your maidservant, pass by, Adyavu, you know, in safety, Omein Selok. And then you throw a stone behind you. You throw a stone in front of you or throw a stone to your left and throw a stone to your right. And the other three, remember, there were seven. You tie them tightly on
0: your head in the handkerchief of one of your turbans. Just to advise our listeners not to try this today. Oh, it's not they can, proven. They
1: can try it, but I'm not sure how far they will get. <laughs> Just make sure when you're throwing the stones, there's no one nearby. But the text is interesting because those seven names, the seven prophets, Odom, Noah, that is the influence of Islam, uh, which means that these people are covering all their bases and they're probably selling both to Muslims and Jews. Um, There's another ritual in this handbook for finding a thief. If you've got a list of suspects, you take some clay and you make balls of clay and you write the names of your suspects on each one on a separate piece of paper. And uh, you put one piece of paper per clay ball. You put them in the bowl, which is filled with water. And you say one of the Tehillim of uh, Muskel Osof. And the ball with the name of the thief on will split into two or three. And the name will then be floating on the water and none of the other balls will split. <laughs> now, I guess if you try it once and it doesn't work, then this guy is shown up to be fake. So maybe there was something in this. Could be. And the, the directions there are purely, so to speak, Jewish And the texts were there to achieve a wide range of goals, depending on what you wanted. You know, curative, love, revenge. And the amulets state their goal. If you want to know what will happen in the world, to kill your enemies or subdue them, depends how bad they are, I get, for every evil that you need, they were quite open about what they were selling.
0: Did any religious Jews make use of this?
1: Well, we can't say for sure, but put it this way, almost none of the recipes require magical practices on Shabbos, and none of them, or rarely, do any call for use of non-kosher substances. There's two and a half thousand documents, and there's lots of religious Jews around at the time. So, yeah, I mean, it's
0: almost certain
1: especially the ones which are more proven is that
0: because they were more naive back then or because these things actually they were definitely much closer to the usage of them I don't think that makes them
1: less or more naive it means that their world was much more connected to this type of practice I mean you've even got instructions how to write amulets you know ahavar for love or listom loshen hara or ayin hara And you need to fast, you need to be pure, you need to write it on a Thursday morning on parchment. There's there's some based on the Membase, you know, the 42-lettered name of Hashem. So you have all sorts in there, but it is fascinating for the insights that it provides. But to end this week, we'll talk about one of the treasures discovered in the Geniza, documents written in Yiddish. It's a series of letters from uh, Rachel Zussman in Yerushalayim to her son Moshe, who has settled with his family in Cairo for business reasons, and they're written in the mid-1560s.
0: And Yiddish is so old?
1: The Yiddish dates to the times of Roshonim. It's even older than that. Oh, wow. The oldest Yiddish document is, I think, 13th century.
0: Yeah. But wasn't Yiddish a combination of German and…
1: Uh... So, it's based on German, and it's based as a way of Jews… Having a common language, making use of the local one, but in a dialect that gives it its insularity, gives it its own independence. So this Rachel Zussman seems to have been um, an educated woman, although she doesn't appear to have written the letters herself. She dictated them to a professional scribe. And it is stereotypically Jewish mother. She uh, complains about the lack of letters from her son. Although the spelling is very, very different. You know, fun is vase, vov, nun, not fe. Less stereotypically, her son Moshe married a woman named Masuda, a Jewish woman from one of the Arab countries. And Rachel was very satisfied by the match even suggesting that his daughter, Bela, who is her granddaughter, who had now reached marriageable age, be married to a young man from Masuda's family. And she writes, you know, my dear son, may you live and be well. I, Loyolenu, am very sick. God knows what will be my end. But my dear son, do not be distressed. I asked Hashem, or HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as she puts it, for you not to be sick and for me to suffer instead of you. And they also ask that he not let me die until I see you once again and that you recite Kaddish after me. So Moshe replies and his letter was sent to his mother, Rachel, in Jerusalem. So how does it end up in the Cairo Geniza? Because his mother wrote back and she wrote on the blank spaces of the page that he'd written to her. She obviously had a lot of room to write because his letter was quite short. And as a quotation, uh, she says, You know, leave Cairo, settle in Jerusalem because you can learn so much more in the holy city than uh, learn the Dart mit Deiner than you're currently learning in Cairo. In other words, they're far better yeshivas in Jerusalem than in Cairo. And she says, you know, God will forgive you for distressing me so much by not writing to me. And there's lots of motherly advice in the letter. So it's absolutely classic.
0: It's fascinating. The world's changed, but uh, the but, roles but remain the hasn't. same. But yes. it hasn't. Thank you very much for that. So next week we are going to be continuing with the Gneezer. And we're going to be looking at personalities that were yes. revealed through the Gneezer do remember to follow whatever media platform you're listening to this on. Remember to press follow so that you shall not miss another podcast. And as usual, any feedback or reviews can be sent to uk. Thank you, Robert Hirsch. We'll see you next week.